Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and this is the 125th program in this series. I'm moving into John chapter 20. This is the first day of the week, the day when Jesus rose from the dead. But I'm going to start at the end of chapter 19, just two verses above, in John chapter 19, verse 41, where John said, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. I'd like to start here, especially with regards to the preparation day. Now, there were several preparation days during this week, one after the other. The first preparation day would have been on Wednesday. This was the preparation day for the Feast of Passover, the Passover meal, the one that would be held with the sacrificed Passover lamb. Jesus and the disciples had this meal. This was considered to be the Last Supper. And there was a preparation day for that meal. Now, there was another preparation day after that, and that was Thursday. On Thursday, which was the day that Jesus was crucified and put in the tomb, this was also a preparation day. But it was a preparation day for the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this festival began 24 hours after the Passover meal, according to the Law of Moses. Then there was another preparation day on this week, and that was on Friday. Now, this preparation day has not yet arrived at the end of chapter 19, because at the end of chapter 19, Jesus was placed in the tomb, and this was on Thursday during the day. The next day was Friday, and this also was a preparation day. It was a preparation day for the weekly Sabbath that was going to begin Friday evening when there were three stars visible in the sky. And so this was a preparation day. It was the third preparation day in a row for this week because the Passover began Wednesday evening. There was a preparation day on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday for three different reasons. Now, the other thing that I wanted to mention is the Sabbath days. On the Passover, the entire nation was expected, was required, to be in Jerusalem in order to observe the Passover or nearby. There were a lot of people, and so the surrounding communities were temporarily annexed into being part of Jerusalem in order to accommodate the large numbers of people who came to observe the Passover. So the entire country, relatively speaking, was present In order to observe the law of Passover, they were all there in the same area. And when they got up in the morning, they discovered that there was this trial taking place with regards to Jesus. And then Jesus was crucified. 
Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was also considered to be a Sabbath day. And so if anybody's going to leave town, they're not going to be able to go very far because they have to prepare for the Sabbath of the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So if people don't get up and move and move quickly, then they're not going to get very far away from Jerusalem because of the laws of the Sabbath for the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would have been on Friday. But then there was another Sabbath, the seventh-day Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, that would happen right after the Sabbath of the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So everyone was required to be in Jerusalem on Wednesday evening. They have Thursday during the day to go someplace But on Thursday evening, they have to remain wherever they are in order to observe the Sabbath of the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then they're going to have to stay wherever they are another 24 hours after that, beginning Friday evening, because of the seventh day weekly Sabbath. So everyone was in town. The entire nation was there. Everyone was present. News would obviously get around quickly with regards to Jesus being crucified, and everyone would still be in town or relatively close Sunday morning because the seventh-day Sabbath ended Saturday evening when there were three stars visible in the sky. Very few people would consider traveling in the middle of the night. They would remain there until Sunday morning. But on Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the dead. And everyone is geographically close enough that they are going to get the news that is going to get around because of Jesus' resurrection. So then going into chapter 20, this is the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 1, he said, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, this was significant because there were Roman soldiers who were posted there in order to ensure that no one would roll the stone away from the tomb. We know this from the account from the other gospel writers that the Romans established a seal on the tomb and they posted a guard there to make sure, first of all, that Jesus was still there and also that no one would take the body of Jesus. But now, when Mary shows up, she discovers that the tomb has been opened. It appears also that the Roman soldiers are not there, which means that something has gone wrong. Something has happened. The most likely conclusion is that the Romans decided to move the body of Jesus. That would be the most obvious conclusion if you make the assumption that he did not resurrect from the dead. This is what people would probably think. But what does Mary do? In verse 2, then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Most likely this is referring to the author of this letter, John himself, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Verse 3, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first, probably John. It appears that John was a faster runner, and he decided to put that down here. In verse 5, And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, and he did not go in. 
verse 6, Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also. And he saw and believed. Well, what did he believe? He could believe that someone had taken Jesus. Or he could have believed that Jesus resurrected from the dead. We don't have that much information here. In verse 9, the following verse, he said, For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So this gives the indication that they believed that Jesus was missing, but they did not necessarily believe yet that he was resurrected. So what did they do? In verse 10, Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. And why would they do that? Well, what else are they going to do? Are they going to go search for the body of Jesus? If someone took him out of the tomb, do you think that they're going to tell anybody that they've got him? Why would they do that? Are they going to put him on display or something? Obviously, something is going on here. But the disciples don't know what has really happened. They can make the assumption that someone took the body of Jesus and they don't know where he was taken. It's unlikely they're going to find out where he was taken. Whoever took him should not have taken him because of the Roman guard. So there could be some serious trouble involved with being found with the body of Jesus if you've got him. So all they can do is just go home. There is nothing they can do. Regardless of what has happened to Jesus, there is nothing that they can do. All they can do is just go back home and continue to live their lives. Now, going back up to verse 7, there is a description of the handkerchief. In verse 7, this is John chapter 20, verse 7, And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Now, in recent times, there has been the suggestion by a lot of people that there is some kind of significance to the napkin around his head being folded and placed. This is something that has recently been promoted through some of the messianic communities. These are congregations of people who have decided to try and live in obedience to the Mosaic law in order to be blessed by God. They may believe that they are saved by grace, but by the way that they live in general, they also believe that they are sustained by their works. And their ceremonial practices correspond very well to the Reformed synagogues of the modern age. And they participate in these ceremonies that are derivations from Jewish ceremonies in different synagogues with the idea that maybe they will appeal to other Jews who are familiar with the worship in the synagogues. And so if people will come, they might be interested in what they're doing. They might feel a little bit more comfortable with the atmosphere, with the ceremonial worship, because it's something that they might be a little bit more familiar with. Unfortunately, as I've spoken with a lot of Jews who do have a significant background in participating in synagogues, we generally find these ceremonies to be a little offensive because they are definitely 
a revised version of the most liberal and reformed ceremonies that are taking place in the modern age. There is very little historical connection between what is happening in most messianic congregations and the synagogues of today. And there is also the belief among the people that if you are participating in these ceremonies, then you will perhaps be closer to God because Jesus was a Jew. Let's be more like a Jew and then we can be closer to Jesus. We can be closer to God in this abstract way. And this is just not the case. People try it. They believe that they are. But this is not an unusual conversation that I have with Jewish believers who do have a significant background in the synagogues where we will just simply talk with each other and we recognize amongst ourselves that this is just not a pleasant environment for us to be in. Now, having said that, I have heard rumors that sometimes there is a Jewish person who does have a background in the synagogues, who has an appreciation for what these congregations are doing. And so I would not want to say that these congregations should discontinue, that they should disband or anything like that. I'm just saying from my own personal experience, what they suggest they are there for is definitely not being fulfilled in the scope and in the way that they are advertising. One of the things that keeps these congregations alive is that they promote the idea that you can know more about the scriptures and you can know more about your God if you understand Judaism. And there is some truth to that. I say there is some truth because it depends on what they share. It depends on what they teach and how they present it. Now, I, of course, certainly do recognize that there is a lot that a person can appreciate and understand if they know the law, if they know the history, and if they know some of the discussions and arguments that take place within rabbinical circles that go back to before the time of Jesus. I can understand that. I have recorded many programs that reveal a lot of these things. I have made a lot of contributions to the Christian world by explaining a lot of these things, and it turns out that most all of these things are not presented in the Messianic community, but I have made a lot of contributions along these lines. Unfortunately, many of these congregations suggest that they can present things that people can appreciate, learn from, and understand. However, they do tend to fall short on what they're really presenting, and it can turn out that in many ways, they're not really sharing much of anything at all. But this is something that has come out of the Messianic community recently, the subject of the napkin and the folded napkin that is described here in John chapter 20, verse 7. There is a suggestion that because he folded the napkin and put it aside, that this represented the idea that he was going to return. If he didn't fold it, then it would represent the idea that he was not going to return. But there is absolutely nothing in the historical writings of Judaism that suggests this. There is nothing. I have not been able to find anything. And I've looked and I've asked the people who have advertised this if they could tell me where I could go to find where they're getting this from. But as far as I can tell so far, 
and I'm teaching from this verse right now, I don't mind replacing this recording later if someone would give me some additional information that I could look at to see where they're getting this from. Because at this time, the only way that I could describe this belief that there is something significant about him folding this napkin is to say that this is pure messianic mythology. That would be the right word to use. It is mythology. It is pure fantasy. It is something that is totally made up. The closest that I can get to a discussion of the napkins in the rabbinical writings that would be applicable for this time in history would be the discussion that's presented in a text called Berakot 52b. It's in folio 52b in the book of Berakot. In this discussion, there is a comparison between the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. The school of Shammai said that if you are having a meal and you wipe your mouth with your napkin, then you are to place it on the table. The school of Hillel said that if you wipe your mouth with your napkin, then you are to put it on the seat cushion. Now, what was so significant about this discussion? Well, the significance had to do with the problem of how do you reconcile the school of Shammai with the school of Hillel? How do you say that both are correct? You can't say that you put the napkin on the table if you're of the school of Hillel because the table may have been defiled already, in which case it would defile the napkin. According to the school of Shammai, the seat cushion could have been defiled first. And so if you place the napkin on the seat cushion and it is ritually defiled, then you could defile the food on the table if the napkin comes in contact with the table. And there was no way that they were able to reconcile how you handle your napkin. And this was important because this was the purpose of the discussion is how do we say that they are both right? And they couldn't say that they were both right in terms of whether you fold the napkin or whether you put the napkin on the table or on the cushion. So this was the conclusion. The conclusion was that you are to be careful with your napkin. You see, the school of Shammai said, in effect, that you were to be careful with your napkin and that this was a way that you could be careful with your napkin. And that the school of Hillel said that you were to be careful with your napkin and that this was the way that you would be careful with your napkin. And so that was the consistency that they were able to find in order to reconcile the different ways that the people would handle their napkin depending upon whether or not they were a part of the school of Shammai or Hillel. The conclusion was, just be careful with your napkin. It had nothing to do with, are you going to come back to the table or not? Are you going away and not coming back? Or are you going away and you are coming back? It had nothing to do with that at all. That kind of discussion does not exist in the rabbinical writings of this time period. I've looked. And so I do consider this to be an example of messianic mythology. You do have to be careful with these things sometimes. Now, proceeding into verse 11, this is John chapter 20, verse 11. The disciples went to their own homes, but Mary stood outside by the tomb, weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. 
and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. That was the assumption. The assumption that the disciples had was that somebody took the body of Jesus. They did so against the Roman guards who were set there to guard the tomb. We don't know what happened. They're obviously not around. We don't know where the body of Jesus is. We have no information at all. All that we can tell is that the situation is definitely unusual and uncertain. So then in verse 14, Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which would be better transliterated as Rabboni, which is to say, my rabbi. It is in the possessive. My rabbi. And then in verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. But we don't know what happened after that. We don't know how responsive they were or how receptive they were. But even if they believed what Mary said, what are they going to do? There is nothing that they can do. All that they can do is wait for Jesus to complete the work that he began. In this case, he's going to go to the Father, which is a way of saying that he's going to go to the temple of God. He's going to present his blood to the true tabernacle of God, place it on the true altar of God, and then he is going to declare that his work is finished, that he has provided for the forgiveness of sins for the entire world, And the next thing for him to do is to resurrect those who believe in him, resurrect them from the dead spiritually so that they can become children of God and enter into a new life according to the new covenant. But this is something that Jesus is going to do. There is nothing that the disciples can do but wait. And this is a very important premise for the establishment of the new covenant that the new covenant is not about what we will do for God. It is about what he has done for us. The Christian life becomes a life of living on the basis of what he has already done, on the basis of what he has accomplished. In the old covenant, God would be responsive to what we were able to do when it came to the life of repentance and obedience. But in the New Covenant, we live by the inheritance that we have received as a result of his death. And so these are things that the disciples are going to have to discover and adjust to. 
And this is the beginning of that. What can they do? They can do absolutely nothing. But wait for Jesus to do it all for them. And this is what defines the new relationship that God will establish with them and that he establishes with everyone on an individual basis when we surrender to the gospel and we embrace the new covenant that he has defined. And so what are they going to do? They're going to wait and do nothing, just as we should wait and do nothing when we first surrender to the gospel. We should wait. We should be patient. We should discover what he has done and the implications of what he has done for us. And let these truths become an integral part of our lives. And I will continue with this in the next program. Thank you for listening. This is the 125th program in the verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. In this program, I spend a little bit more time with the end of John chapter 19, where I spoke about the preparation days. And I explained that according to the law, there were three preparation days all in a row. The preparation day for the Passover meal, the preparation day for the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then there was another preparation day in preparation for the seventh-day Sabbath. I also explained that there were two Sabbaths consecutively after Jesus was put in the tomb. There was the Sabbath day of the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was from Thursday evening until Friday evening. And then you had the seventh-day Sabbath, which was from Friday evening until Sunday morning. Because of these Sabbath days, all of the people who came to observe the Passover would still be within the general proximity of Jerusalem when Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday morning. And this would be significant because more people would find out about what happened. They knew about the crucifixion because they were there for the Passover. And this would be the kind of news that would travel quickly to notify people that the Roman guards failed to keep the tomb secure because Jesus resurrected from the dead. So I continued into John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. And through these verses, I emphasized that the disciples could do nothing but wait for Jesus to do it all. And I will continue into John chapter 20, verse 19 in the next program. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net that you may